You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. a joy to be able to be here in person together uh, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are four and five, you get to stay in service today. This is a fifth Sunday, and so we encourage our kids to stay in and get to hear God's word. And so we'll be praying for a fruitful time together today. And so let me invite all of us to take our Bibles and let's go to Ephesians chapter one. We have, since the first of the year, been working uh, through the book of Ephesians, and we are just getting started. And so we are in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6. And what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to read this whole section of doxology and praise through verse 3 through 14, but our focal text is verse 4, 5, and 6, okay? So let's read Ephesians 1, starting in verse 3. Follow along in your Bibles. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it is our joy to be assembled on this Sunday morning to worship and to praise you. Lord, may we do today what this text commands us to do, to bless you, our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we get a glimpse from this text into the wondrous plan of redemption, particularly the Father's planning and electing of his church. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would be amazed and, Lord, that the truths of this text would do just what Paul hopes that they would do, that it would lead us to worship and to praise. So, Father, I pray that as I preach your word, that I would preach it faithfully and truthfully, and, Lord, that my words would be used by the Holy Spirit to build up your church and to save those who are lost. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's read verse 4, 5, and 6, just to refocus on them again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, we have a lot of modern day conveniences nowadays, don't we? You've got smartphones, probably got one of those in your pocket. Hopefully it's on silence, right? You've got cars, you've got LED TV panels hanging up in your room, right? It's just remarkable how TVs have shrunken so thin, even in my own lifetime. It's remarkable. We've got microwaves that heat up food for us. You can go to the hospital, you can get a CT scan. We've got fiber optic internet with blazing speed. And we've got so many more of these modern technologies, so many that are new in our lifetimes. It, it blows us away. And we live our lives in such dependence on these conveniences, don't we? And we benefit from them every single day. But do you even know how they work? Do you know how they work? Most of us don't learn the sort of complex engineering of these technologies. We don't really know quite how our smartphone works in our pockets. And we're not really quite sure what a CT scan does or how it generates the image. But nevertheless, here's the thing. We don't have to understand the mechanics of the technology in order to enjoy its benefits, do we? But for those who are curious enough to crack open the device, to explore the engineering of just how does this thing work in our technological world, you will be marveled away, right, by the discoveries of the complexities and the planning of that technology that we so easily enjoy. Now, as we consider our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, many Christians enjoy the benefits of salvation without understanding how the triune God planned from the very foundations of the earth to accomplish it. And we're largely ignorant of exactly how God brings about this great work of salvation. And largely, that's okay. We can still enjoy the benefits of salvation without understanding God's eternal plan and bringing it about. But for those who are willing to study the scriptures and learn hard truths and wrestle over the things of God, there is marvel and joy and worship that awaits us as we see God's wisdom. You know, our ignorance of the Father's election and adoption of his saints stems from really three causes in the Christian life. One is the most dangerous. One is a rejection and denial of what God's word has spoken. God's word speaks quite plainly about both election and adoption. And so to reject it and to deny it and say, God, I don't care what your word says, that is a very spiritually dangerous place to be. But some people do that. Secondly, some people have a spiritual immaturity over these matters. They just simply have never read the scriptures with enough diligence to come across what God's word plainly says. And they've never had the opportunity to wrestle with these things of election and adoption. Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you just have never studied the scriptures and really wrestled what, what Ephesians 1 plainly teaches us. And there's a third category, and this one also is a bit dangerous, but not as dangerous as number one. It's an unwillingness to wrestle with these complex doctrines. Right? We know that God has revealed these things, but they kind of bother us and disturb us, and they make us scratch our head a little bit and wrestle. And so we would rather prefer to just remain ignorant. I'd rather not know. I'd rather not wrestle about the mysterious purposes of God. I affirm them, sure, but I don't want to think about them all that much. Right? Which one are you? You see, rather than denying the doctrine, most dangerous thing, nor neglecting the doctrine, 
spiritually immature thing, or ignoring the doctrine, Paul's going to lead us to consider and to celebrate this doctrine, the hidden mystery of God's eternal purpose and will. And Paul understands that if we really think about these things, we understand how God brings about our salvation, it will and it ought to lead us to worship in response. You see, theologians and philosophers over the generations of the church have sought to unravel the complexities of these doctrines. Because immediately as we begin studying them, we're going to feel the tension, that pull between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But it's worth noting that the scripture never sees a problem between those two. It affirms both. It affirms both are true. So we find it difficult to, how do we resolve these two things with our finite minds? But compared to the mind of God, we are like toddlers who swipe away at our tablet, enjoying our little game, even though we do not have the ability nor the knowledge to understand how it works. All right, that's who we are. We're, we're toddlers scrolling an iPad, and someone's trying to teach us how transistors work, right? It's just we can't, we don't have the ability to understand it. The doctrine of election is like trying to explain silicon and transistors to a one-year-old. You can teach them and instruct them, but we can't understand it. The doctrine of election is just like that. God's ways are not our ways. So our posture, as we consider this text and as we consider God's purposes, it is of utmost importance. That if we approach God's word with this sort of arrogant condescension, standing over in judgment, with this sort of blind confidence in our own reason and, a, and intellect, then we will only consider the doctrine of election a problem to be solved, not a truth to be savored. And that's not what we want to do. Paul aims in this doxology to lead us to worship, right? Remember verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? As Paul is describing the inner working of God's grace and plan before the foundation of the earth, he's bringing us into this rest, and it ought to lead us to worship. Praise the Lord. Paul doesn't call us to analyze these doctrines, to doubt them, to solve them, to philosophize about them, to calculate them. Instead, he calls us to celebrate the God who blesses us in Christ by his perfect and irrefutable will and purposes. So if any considerations of these doctrines, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of adoption, if it doesn't lead you to worship, then there's a major problem. So we approach this text to consider the hidden purposes of God in the Father now revealed in Christ. And we will seek to understand as best as we can the mysteries that Paul brings to our attention in Ephesians 1. But our goal in all of these considerations will be worship, to praise God for his infinite wisdom. Remember, this doxology that we've read has a Trinitarian structure to it. After the initial call of blessing in verse 3, the Father is celebrated in verses 4, 5, and 6 as the architect of redemption. The architect of redemption. He's the one planning it and purposing it. In verses 7 through 10, the Son is considered the one who achieves the work of redemption. He accomplishes it. And then in verses 11 through 14, the Spirit is emphasized as the one who applies the work of redemption and who is the assurance of the work of redemption. So today in Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6, we're focusing our minds on the Father who plans and designs the work of redemption from eternity past by electing and determining to adopt his church. 
And so we will think through the gospel, uh, we will think through the gospel in all these sorts of ways. We're going to first think about God's election. Secondly, we'll think about God's adoption. And thirdly, today we'll think about God's praise. So that's where we're going. Let's first think through the Father's election in verse 4. Now, many outside the church find the, this idea of God's election, they are repulsed by it. Now, after all, it is an affront to our modern sensibilities. We idolize the autonomy of the individual and of the self, self-determination. And so all of this, this very idea of God's election is an affront to our modern sensibilities because we think the human will is ultimate. So most of us, if you've first started wrestling with these things, or if you've wrestled with them before, we often first wrestle as we read the scriptures on these matters. Some of us respond even to this text and we say, wait a second, didn't I choose God? Isn't that how it works? And of course, yes, you did. You did choose God freely and of your own volition. But if God had not chosen you before the foundation of the world, you would have never chosen him. You see, election strikes a blow to our pride and to our self-sufficiency. And while the doctrine of election is difficult for to comprehend, and it does challenge so many of the assumptions that we hold as Westerners, we cannot discard God's word simply because we're uncomfortable with what it teaches or because it challenges what we believe. No, we submit to God's word and what he has revealed. Whether we want to hear it or not, God has revealed the doctrine of election to us. And everything that God tells us about himself is good news. It's good news. You see, this doctrine wasn't invented by John Calvin, Martin Luther, Augustine, or even the Apostle Paul. Instead, God has spoken to us about this doctrine in the scriptures. And the Lord has been so gracious to us to grant us as his children, as believers, he has given us an insight. He didn't have to, but he's given us an insight into the very mystery of his divine will. So therefore, we shouldn't scorn or scoff at this doctrine, nor should we ignore it as an unpleasant thought. Instead, we should be thankful, thankful to God for every aspect of his will that he chooses to disclose to us in his word, even though we admit we peer into a wondrous mystery. So let's consider carefully what Paul has to say in verse four. I've structured our exposition of this verse around questions by which Paul answers in the text. So the first question we're going to ask is how does God elect? How does he do it? And the answer the text gives is God elects in Christ, in Christ. Look at verse 4. Paul states in verse 4, even as he chose us in him, in him. Lots of pronouns here, (laughs) that first verse. What's going on? He refers to the Father, the one who is determined to bless us, and the primary actor in the opening doxology of Ephesians in verse 3. Now, who is the us in verse 4? Well, the us becomes clearer with the prepositional phrase in him. So so the him has its antecedent in verse 3, as the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. So the us then are those who are in Christ, meaning the church, the saints of God, those who have responded to the gospel with repentance and faith, the elect, the redeemed. Right? So to make the Trinitarian connection more explicit in verse 4, you could say it this way, even as the Father chose the church in Christ. That's what this text means. 
Now, some will say that God only chooses the corporate body of the church, and we then have the autonomy to determine whether we will be among the assembly. But that's not sustained over the course of this doxology, nor in the rest of the book of Ephesians, nor is it validated by the rest of Scripture. God does choose a people. He chooses the assembly of the church, but that people is made up of individuals. God's election is not simply corporate, but it is individual as well. Look at the following phrase, even in the next verse. As God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Notice the plural. If it was merely corporate election, we might expect the author to say son. God elected one son, Israel, his people. No, but Paul says sons, meaning multiple individuals. So God's election is not only corporate, but also individual. So God adopts sons, more than one individual. So in addition, the forgiveness that Paul will talk about in just a few verses about how God redeems by his blood, we know from scripture that that forgiveness is applied individually, not just corporately. Forgiveness of sins requires every single person to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot receive forgiveness of sin merely because you showed up today and you're part of this corporate gathering called the church. That doesn't mean you have forgiveness of sins. It requires personal, individual response to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that this text teaches that God has elected individuals in Christ. When we speak of God's elect, we are speaking of Christians. We are speaking of those who hear the gospel, who are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and who freely respond of their own volition with repentance and faith in Christ. And so Paul makes it incredibly clear with all these little in Christ phrases scattered throughout the doxology, he makes it clear that there is no salvation apart from Christ. None. Those whom God has chosen to save will be united to his son. They will be. Without the gospel, without repentance, without faith, without union with Christ, there is no redemption. Remember, Paul stresses that God has chosen us in Christ, only those who are in Jesus are among the elect. There is no salvation apart from him. So God the Father has ordained that redemption, forgiveness of sins, blessings, they all come for those who are in Christ, who are chosen to be in Christ. And there's a second question we might have in response to all these things. When does God do this, right? When does God elect? When does this happen? And the text tells us quite clearly, God elects before the foundation of the world. Now, we can understand perhaps that God chooses in Christ, but the win of election is often far more difficult for us to think about and comprehend. But Paul speaks plainly. God chooses in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be, before the opening of Genesis, God has already chosen his saints in Christ. Now, Paul gives us a glimpse, just a glimpse, into the mind of God here from eternity past. Before the earth was formed and before God fashioned man out of the dirt in his image, the triune God planned to glorify himself through the redemption of his church. 
in all the possible worlds that God could have made, God chose to make this one, one in which he knew that his human creatures would rebel against him, one in which he knew that they would need redemption through his son. God chose this world because in his infinite wisdom, this one brings him the most glory as it enables him to show off the fullness of his character. Many Christians are first troubled when they think about these doctrines. And all sorts of mischaracterizations and misunderstandings can emerge, particularly for those who first think about these things. Let, let me just quickly dismiss some of these mischaracterizations just to clear the air so that we can see the beauty of this doctrine and we can feel its comforts. So one of the misconceptions that you might hear is we might ask, well, does the doctrine of election, God's choosing of his saints, does it violate the free will of man? That's a question you might have. And the answer is no. That in God's mysterious providence, God exercises his sovereign will in a way that preserves the free will of man. Theologians call this the doctrine of concurrence. And this is, means that God, in his sovereignty, accomplishes his irrefutable and certain purposes by actually working in and through what human beings desire. He causes us to desire and choose what we do. Because of man's enslavement to sin, because of our depravity, that our will is corrupt and that we, by nature, rebel against God. And even though God chooses to sovereignly save some, every human person bears complete responsibility for his or her own sin and their voluntary rejection of God. The scriptures affirm both. And so we hold them in tension, even as we don't fully comprehend how God's sovereignty and human free will go together, human accountability. We trust that God's word is true and we trust the mind of God. Second, here's another mischaracterization that you might have. This one's pretty easily dismissed, but you hear it all the time. Well, does the doctrine of election mean that there's no point in sharing the gospel? That there's no point in calling repentance and faith that sinners respond in this way? And the answer to that is Certainly not. That's absurd, right? The scriptures give the entire church, including you, the command to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, sharing the gospel with every person that we can. The scripture speaks plainly about these things. So anyone who would use the doctrine of election as a filter for evangelism or as an excuse for not sharing the gospel is in sinful error. And we shouldn't be afraid to say so. In fact, throughout church history, we've actually seen the opposite over time. That those pastors and missionaries who most deeply held to the doctrine of election were often the first to lay down their lives for the gospel. From William Carey to Adoniram Judson, belief in the doctrine of God's sovereignty over souls and salvation didn't impair them from going to the nations. Rather, it has so frequently mobilized the church in great confidence to take the gospel to the nations, trusting that even among the hardest to reach people groups in foreign countries, that God is sovereign and that if he has willed salvation among that people group, there will be those who come and repent and believe in the gospel. So now that we've dismissed with some of these common mischaracterizations, I'm sure you have many more questions about this doctrine. Questions like, well, is, is this the, the best of all possible worlds, really? 
Is this, what, this is the best one, God? Or why did you plan to save only the elect? And how does your sovereign choice correspond to the free will of human creatures? How does that work out? And we can rattle off such questions. And such questions are, are worth considering and wrestling through. And we don't have time to wrestle through all of those this morning. But like Paul, as he explains the doctrine of election, particularly in the most important chapter on this doctrine in Romans chapter 9, we have to realize our place. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 9. Let's read what Paul says as we think about these things. We approach them humbly, even with our questions. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 19. Romans 9, verse 19. Paul writes, You will say to me then, here's the, the question, right? Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And here's Paul's response. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? You see, one of the things Paul stresses here, and this is what we have to remember as we think about this doctrine, is that the will and mind of God is incomprehensible to us. Theologians have done the best they can over the centuries to try to systematize and understand this doctrine, and they've done so for centuries. It's a worthy effort to do, yes, but here's the thing you have to remember. Don't get so lost in your theologizing about the doctrine of election that you miss Paul's aim of doxology here in Ephesians chapter 1. Election is not a problem to be solved, but a blessing that ought to move us to praise. This blessed God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing has chosen to do so from the very foundations of the earth. That the doctrine of election is a comfort for the Christian. And it ought to never be a source of spiritual angst. That's not why God has revealed it to us. You see, without the doctrine of election, Christian assurance, assurance that you are in Christ, that you will have salvation, that would be impossible if there wasn't the doctrine of election. If it were not for God's sovereign decree to save me from before the foundation of the world, then I would have no hope. If staying in Christ was up to my own fickle heart, my wayward heart, or my own self-determination, then I would be deservedly damned. And so would you. But praise be to God, right? This is praise be to God that I can be secure in Christ. I can be secure in him, not because I've chosen God, but because he has chosen me. That God, by his sovereign purposes, has determined to save me in Christ before the very foundations of the earth. Therefore, God will protect me not only from the darts and arrows of Satan's horde, but most dangerously from my own wicked and depraved and rebellious heart. Every spiritual blessing which God blesses me in Christ comes by his grace, his initiative, his choice, not my own. And who can thwart the will of the Lord? Who can thwart it? Who can reverse what God in heaven has determined? Who can appeal his decision and overrule it? If God has chosen to bless me in Christ, then if all hell conspired against me to drag me to its depths, the demonic horde cannot overcome the resolve of God's will. It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. 
God's sovereign choice of his church, it's a mysterious one. I'm not minimizing that. It's one we will never fully comprehend. But yet we can experience the blessings of this election. If we would study this doctrine, the security that it might bring to our souls, and overall, it should lead us to rejoice in God's infinite wisdom, his infinite power, his infinite and lavish grace. Who is like the Lord, our God, who has chosen us in Christ Question three, though, about the doctrine of election is why does God do it? (laughs) Why does God elect? And the text tells us that God elects to make us holy and blameless before him. To make us holy and blameless before him. Our text not only tells us that God chooses us in Christ, but, but Paul also helps us see why this is God's purposes. Why he planned it this way. Why does God elect? He elects so that we should be holy and blameless before him. Now, some might say, and it's a wrong thing to say, but some might say that the doctrine of election will lead to spiritual laziness and apathy, right? This sort of easy believism, this sort of merely transactional understanding of the gospel. No, certainly not. And anyone who might rest their salvation and election on a one-time decision and not on a present, continual, and active faith That person is spiritually deceived, and we should warn them. While the doctrine of election does give us great assurance of our salvation, not one of us will be plucked from his hand. Yes and amen. But the elect of God perseveres, continues in faith until the end by the power of God. So thus Peter would warn us in 2 Peter 1.10, Peter says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. You ought not to be presumptuous over it. Or we can have the confidence of our salvation in Christ. We can have true Christian assurance by the Spirit. We should never assume that we are a part of the elect just because we attended a church as a kid, or just because we grew up in a Christian home, or just because I've convinced the pastor to baptize me at a young age. Right? That just doesn't mean that you are among God's people. Our text shows us what the ultimate aim of God's election is, of his choosing us in Christ. He chooses us so that we might be holy and blameless, right? That's why as we read those words, I'm shocked by them as I look at my own life. As I look at my own life filled with with struggles, with sin, as I see my own daily need of repentance and I see how much of a sinner as I am, I I ask God the question, Lord, how can I be holy and blameless before you? holy and blameless before you. But yet that is exactly what God is doing in your life in Christ by his grace. That is his sovereign will for your life. You want a purpose statement for your life? This is it. If you are in Christ, God has elected you and saved you so that you might be holy and blameless before him. God has chosen not only to rescue us from sin, rescue us from hell, but to transform us by his grace. Once we are united to Christ by faith, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, as we'll learn in this doxology. And so the Spirit of God gets to work in us, sanctifying us, helping us to put to death sin, transforming us into the new man, the new woman, putting on righteousness, putting off the flesh, and we grow in holiness day by day. And the work of sanctification never ends in the Christian life, but one day, One day, the Spirit's work in us will be complete, and we will stand before the Lord on the day of Christ, and we will be brought before the presence of God, holy and blameless. That amazes me. (laughs) 
(laughs) as I see my own sin. That one day by God's power, by God's grace, I will stand before the Lord justified and holy and blameless because of Christ. Notice that significant little phrase, right? This is before him, before him. God elects us to make us fit to come into his presence. That in our wretchedness and sin, we are unworthy to come before him. We, We don't deserve to be there. We ought to respond as we see our sin before holy God. We respond like Isaiah the prophet, woe is me. But yet by the father's grace and wisdom and purposes, the Father, father's choosing, by the son's deliverance, by the spirit's ongoing work of transformation, God is making his elect fit for heaven. He is sanctifying us. That if you are united in Christ, let me ask you that question. Are you being made more fit for heaven day by day. God has chosen you for this purpose. This is why you live. Not to have a big house, not to have a hefty paycheck, not to have a comfortable life filled with leisure. No, God has chosen you to be holy and blameless before him. Church, you have been called to holiness. This is our calling. Therefore, may we commit to growing in this holiness. May it be the priority of our lives to live for God, to live for his kingdom, and to be more fit for it. So as we grow in holiness, we ought to strive to grow in obedience, living for the gospel, proclaiming the gospel to the world, being increased in the fruit of the spirit and in faithfulness. And so may the Lord, by his sovereign power, by his spirit, may he hasten this work of sanctification in your life and in mine. And the blessings continue. If you are in Christ, not only has God chosen you, not only has he elected you, but he has also adopted you. And that leads to the second point, the father's adoption. As we consider God's adoption of his children, we're going to look at each of these phrases as well, just like we did in verse four, which helps us understand the nature of God's adoption. So we will ask the question and then we'll hear God's answer from his word. First question, why does God adopt? (laughs) Why does he do it? And the answer is God adopts in love. He adopts in love. Remember Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one big, very long sentence. And our English translations break up this long sentence in order to make it a little bit more readable for us. So in the ESV, if you have the English Standard Version, we have a new sentence starting with the phrase, in love. But in the original language, it's, exact, it's sort of unclear which phrase in love is modifying. Is it modifying verse 4 or verse 5? We're not entirely sure. Either way, it does perfectly connect the father's election and the father's adoption. And so the phrase helps us understand the posture of the father's heart as he plans this work, as he elects and as he adopts. He does so in love, in love. Love is what compels him to act. He is generous in heart. He is longing to share his goodness with his human creatures. He wants, he desires to lavish his people with his grace. And this is really good news because God's election of his saints, it's no mere mechanical operation. The glorious plan of redemption is not an assembly line for God's glory. It is not a factory, but it is a family, a family. And how marvelous is this, right? That that as the church, we are no mere byproduct of God's output of self-glorification, 
No, all of God's actions are motivated by his love. That he chooses us in Christ because he loves those whom he's chosen. He loves them. He longs for you to bring you and to make you holy, to make you blameless before him. He wants to bring us into his presence because God desires in love to do good to you, blessing you with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so it is in that love that he chooses to adopt you as his son or as his daughter. God is love, and it is his love that compels him to act, to adopt his children. Now, question two, when does God adopt? And again, we see here that God adopts without conditions. He adopts without conditions. Here, Paul bridges the doctrine of election with the blessing of adoption. Look at what the text says in verse five, that he predestined us for adoption He predestined us for adoption. The the word predestined, it ought not to make us squirm. It's good news. Predestined simply means to decide beforehand. So grounded with verse 4, the meaning becomes really clear as we look at these two verses together. That God chose to adopt us in his family before the earth existed. That he predetermined, he predestined us to something. And what did he decide beforehand for us? He decided that he would adopt us, that we would be his sons, that we would be his daughters. You see, Paul is stressing in our doxology here, God's sovereign and definitive action. I mean, just look at the end of verse five. Paul litters this phrase all throughout this opening chapter. God does all of this, why? According to the purpose of his will. This is what he has chosen. This is what he has decided. And as God chooses to adopt us, we have to remind ourselves that he doesn't choose us based on any foreseen merit within us. We are spiritual orphans. That's who we are. Dead in our trespasses and sin. That's who we are. We are destitute. We are disfigured. There is no reason for God to have compassion on us. No reason that God would make us his children and set his love upon us. But if you are in Christ, God has adopted you into his family, even though you have nothing to offer him. Nothing. In love, God has predestined us for adoption. And we should marvel at this. Some may say that Paul's theology here may cause us to boast. To boast. Hey, look at us. We're Christians. We're the elect of God. We are the ones who've been adopted into his family. May it never be so that we would say such foolish things. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2 verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. God's adoption of us decided before the foundation of the world should bring us to our knees in humility. Humility. Think about it. Who are we? Who are you to have a seat at God's table as one of his family members, as one of his children? Who are we to be the recipients of God's love by which he pours out every spiritual blessing? Who are we to be redeemed out of our sin by the blood of Christ? Who are we to be changed from depraved and damned sinners to adorned and adopted saints? Who are we to share in the inheritance of God's blameless own son? You see, if these doctrines stroke your pride, 
They make you arrogant. They cause you to boast over others. Then friend, you do not understand them. You do not understand them. And do us all a favor and keep your mouth shut about these doctrines until you go to your knees and worship. And if they never humble you, if you are never moved to tears over these truths, then I suggest for the sake of your own soul that you heed Peter's counsel to be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Question three, for whom does God adopt? God adopts us to himself. He adopts us to himself. Notice the text. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. To himself. How sweet is that little phrase? To himself. This is remarkably good news. Church, do you realize that that God wants you? (laughs) He wants you. He wants to bring you near. He wants to bring you to himself as his child. But if, if you're like me, perhaps there are many days, maybe today's one of them, right, where you wake up and you feel rather lousy about yourself when you look in the mirror. Right? Your weaknesses and failures just seem to dogpile upon your heart and just crush you. You feel your inadequacies. You feel condemned by the devil. You feel unloved and undesirable. And in those moments, you might think to yourself, who would want me? Who would want me? Who would be glad to see me? Who would, who would love somebody like me with all my faults, with all my failures, all my struggles and sins? Who could do so? Today, I don't even want to love myself. Who, who will love me? And yet, in those moments, the good news of God's adoption actually just shouts and shatters our delusions and our self-loathing despair. Because in adoption, God the Father says, I want you. I love you. I've chosen you in my son to lavish you with my grace, to redeem you by my own son's blood, to pour out upon you every spiritual blessing upon your head. Child, don't you see in love, I predestine you for adoption to myself. I don't need you, never had, but I want you. I desire to bring you to myself. And from eternity past, I have planned and worked according to the purpose of my will to have you as my own. What comforts there are in the security of God's fatherly love for his adopted children. Church, rejoice that God has adopted us to himself. He will have us. He will save us. He will bring us into his presence. He will do so according to the purpose of his will. So take heart, church. God adopts us to himself. Then question four, how does God adopt? And God adopts through Christ. Through Christ. It comes up yet again. Notice how Paul just piles up this truth in this sentence in verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. There we see it again. God's adoption is possible. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us in him, right? If if it were not for the son redeeming us by his blood, then nobody could be a part of God's family. Our adoption is only possible because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. The blood of Christ was the price of our redemption and our adoption. And the father gladly purposed the death of his son so that we might be his sons and daughters. And we'll talk more about just how Jesus does this in our next text for next Sunday. But thirdly, let's consider the Father's praise. 
the Father's praise. The Father's work of election and adoption, it ought to culminate. What should our response be this morning? It ought to be praise. Paul states emphatically that this is the purpose of the Father's will, that these things be. He has chosen, he has determined them. It is according to his purpose. And what is the ultimate aim of all that God does? Ephesians 1 is really, really clear. Why does God do all that he does? He does it to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Right? God does all that he does for his own glory, for his own praise, that he might be exalted and lifted high. You see, all these precious truths that we've talked about this morning, as deep as they are, they ought to lead us to worship, to praise the Father for his glorious grace. He is the one who is the grand architect of this glorious plan of redemption. And God in his infinite wisdom has planned from eternity past to save us in Christ so that, he, by, so that his grace, that he lavishes upon us, that he might be praised by those who are so undeservingly recipients of it. All of this blessing, all of this grace we receive, it comes to us in Christ, in the beloved. So if the Father is the architect of redemption, Christ is the one who accomplishes our redemption, and then the Spirit is the one who applies that work of redemption in our lives. Church, if you have a share in these blessings, if you are of the elect of God, if you are an adopted child in God's family, if you are in Christ, if you've repented and believed upon him, then may your response today to these truths be a humble affirmation of them, and may ye spur you to praise and to worship. That should be our response, that we praise the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has orchestrated our redemption, who has planned it, our choosing, our redemption, our salvation for himself, that he has planned, he has chosen to adopt us. May we respond in praise and worship in humble gratitude. And if you are not in Christ today, what you have heard today is the sort of sermon that is a family dinner table conversation with the Father. <laughs> we are God's children, and today we have sat around the table, and God has told us the story of how he adopted us into his family. It's a family conversation. He's talking to his children. He's talking to his church to comfort us, to assure us of his love. So if you're not a Christian today, let me encourage you not to get too bogged down in the specifics of God's election and adoption that you've heard today. As much of these doctrines that we're talking about today are better understood inside the family around the table than outside of the family. But I do pray that as you've been listening in to our family conversation today, that you have heard the word of God preached, that you've heard this family conversation, and that the Holy Spirit has done something in your heart, that he's pricked your heart, that he has stirred within you even today. Man, I really want to be a part of that family. Man, I really want to join the children of God who have been adopted by God's grace. I want to join them around that table. So you might ask the question, how can I be forgiven of sins? How can I be reconciled to God? How can I share in all of these blessings that you've been talking about today, that this text talks about? And it's pretty simple, really. Humble yourself before God, confess your sin to God, and confess how undeserved you are to be a recipient of his love, and then turn from your sin and your wickedness and put your faith in the beloved, in Jesus Christ, the one who pays the penalty and forgives us of our sins. You see, all the blessings of God that we've described 
come through Christ. We've seen it over and over again, even in these just few verses. We've seen it over and again. They all come through Jesus. So friend, if you're outside of the family today, you can be a part of the family. We would love to have you. We pray that today that you would turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. You will be forgiven. You will be forgiven and you will be adopted as a child of God. And by God's grace, today, may you no longer be a distant observer to God's redemption, but may you join us, an assembly of redeemed sinners, chosen and adopted by God in Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come together this morning, we confess that so much of what we have studied from this text, we we only understand a little. Father, that the, the brightest among us can only understand just a small fraction of your infinite purposes that you've revealed in your word. But Lord, yet we believe that your word is good, that it is true. And Lord, we believe just as your word has says that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Lord, we believe that in love you predestined us for adoption to yourself as sons through Jesus Christ. Lord, we believe your word is true. And so, Father, as we as Christians today, as your children, as we, as we, have, as we have heard our adoption story, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would respond today in worship and gladness and joy and praise. And, Lord, may we bring you glory as your children as we celebrate and cherish your love that you have so lavishly poured out upon us. But Father, I do pray for those who are outside of this family today, who have yet to be brought into the family of God. I pray, God, that by your mercy and by your power, Lord, that you would soften hearts. And Lord, that you would lead those who are sinners, who are orphans, that they might repent of their sin and so put their faith in Jesus Christ today. And so become one of your own children, God. Lord, we pray that you would save today. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be bold and proclaiming this gospel and sharing this gospel with the world. Lord, we love you. And Lord, as we respond to this word this morning, Lord, may you receive all glory and all praise from your people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.